Stay hungry, stay foolish. The world is full of leaders, from newly minted entrepreneurs to highly paid CEOs. In fact, there are nearly a quarter of a million CEOs in America alone. But according to Gallup's yearly report, The State of the American Manager, only 1 in 10 possess the talent that's required of a CEO. If 90% of people lack innate management skills, how can CEOs succeed? CEOs can build incredible cultures, grow companies, and enhance the bottom line. But without the right guidance, they can just as easily burn out, cause cultures to stagnate, and lead their organizations to ruin. Drawing from 20-plus years of working side-by-side with today's top leaders, today's guest pulls back the leadership curtain to reveal the shifts, practices, and tools that move leaders past the status quo. Today we'll discuss why having all the answers is not necessarily a good thing, how to recognize if busyness is in fact a sign of anxiety or discomfort, why there's no such thing as perfectly crafted corporate messages, how the lack of a counter-narrative can bring a CEO down, and how to lead change in a way that brings people along. We welcome national leadership expert and author of Finding Time to Lead, Seven Practices to Unleash Outrageous Potential. Leslie Peters, welcome to the show. Thanks, Aidan. Great to be here. It's really good to have you on the show, Leslie. We've a lot to cover today, but I wanted to say one thing. I was reading the praise for the book. One thing really caught my eye, and it was this common denominator throughout all the praise for the book from many people you've worked with and many people that reviewed the book. And what they all said was, you encourage leaders to be people as well as leaders and not to forget who they are. I thought that was really interesting. Thank you. Thank you. And it's sort of a thing that we often take for granted, like, oh, now I'm a leader. I have to stop being human or I have to be a different kind of human. And in fact, we always bring ourselves. And so I think that that's sort of that intersection between who we are and how we lead is a really, really powerful place. Yeah. And you talked about this in the book later on that when somebody embraces themselves in their role, it's like almost that, like this synchronicity comes together of those two things. The person they are in work is actually the person they are when they leave work as well. Exactly. And when you can do that, it makes all of the things you do at work so much more authentic. There's a lot of talk about authenticity. And when you can get to that space where you can be the person you are as a leader, the best version of yourself to the extent you can get there every day. Absolutely. And I'd love to, before we start, to give a kind of a framework of the book, because you've laid it out really simply in seven major steps that we need to go through, and then tools to support each of those steps. It'd be great to understand a little bit about that. Sure. I wrote it really to be a practical book. I think I love leadership books, but a lot of them are very theoretical. And a lot of them are also really long. And so you get sort of a third of the way through and then you think, oh, I think I've got this. Um, Really try to make this kind of an easy thing to read and to think, oh, I could do that. Or to think, oh, that applies to me in this way. So it's really laid out in these practices. The first thing is about the three shifts that are required for great leadership, in my experience. So the first shift is from doing to being, um, that we spend a lot of time thinking about how much we have to do. And when you're particularly in the CEO chair, but really in any kind of leadership chair, even as a colleague or a parent, it's really about who we are. It's about sort of showing up that way. 
Um, the second one is from reacting to responding. So really taking some time to think about not just sort of those quick reactions, but really how do I take the time to respond? And the other one is from knowing to understanding. So in a complex role as a CEO, you can't really know anything or everything at least. You have to understand the big picture. So those are the three shifts. And then there are the seven practices and each of those has some what that's about and how to think about it. And then three really specific tools that people can use to to sort of do those things. So the shifts are they all start with ease. They didn't all start with ease when I started the book. I just sort of started writing and sort of coming up with the experiences that I've had and the things that I've experienced and and um, sort of noticed about really great leaders. And then as I started working on it, it sort of they all fell together that way. So I will just tell about the seven, just read the seven, and then we can sort of dive in. The first one is embark, which is just about making the choice to, as you said, sort of align who you are with how you lead. The next one is explore, which is really thinking about who you are and how to sort of be both yourself and also not yourself um, in the places where being yourself doesn't really work well. The next one is expand, which is really about how our brains work and getting past sort of our a lot of our unconscious responses, reactions to things. Then engage, it's about how we are with others. Encourage, sort of making the shift from being the center of our own experience to helping others with theirs. Evolve, which is anytime you're growing and learning, there's a place where you have to move past your old self and kind of evolve into some new things. And then the final practice is extend, which is really about kind of moving, uh, making the choice to extend yourself on behalf of others. So those are the seven practices. That's great. And it'd be great to start with the initial shift, which is from doing to being. And that starting point you call embark. Mm-hmm. So a lot of us spend a lot of time in the doing mode. What should I do? What should I do? I need to be busy. I got to be doing things. And as you as you pointed out, we're still people. And so even while we're doing things, we're still who we are. And particularly in a leadership role, you do actually less and less in a leadership role. A lot of what you do is just show up. You are in a, you know, you're there to be who you are and hold space for people to do their work. And so a lot of leaders, you know, really struggle with that transition. We're usually promoted based on something that we're really good at. And then we move into a leadership role and we're really asked to do something that we're not good at or that we're not familiar with. And that is support other people in doing their work. And so we tend to want to slip back into the doing, but this is what I'm really good at. And it's not the role when you're a leader. When you're a leader, you have to be who you are in such a way that it allows other people to do their best work. This is a big shift and it's hard uh, because we're really used to doing. So one of the questions I ask is um, to think about who do I want to be right now is a really different question than what do I want to do right now. Uh, And so asking people to think about who they want to be and think about leaders that they've known and admired, and then also begin to think about who they are when they're their best self and strive to be that as opposed to always doing. You talk about as well, our fear is also linked to this lizard brain. So the ancient brain that we have is jumping in the way, even at this level, even though we've climbed to that level 
in spite of that brain, it's now getting in the way once again. Yes, absolutely. It's always getting in the way. That is a given. Um, Our brain, our lizard brain, sort of our most prehistoric brain is set up for fight or flight, for looking, for running away from threats and moving toward rewards. And I think in some ways it gets even more in the way as we become more and more sort of at a higher level in our organizations on the organization chart. Um, And that's because there's so much at stake. So we actually sort of that, that that fear response can get even bigger as we move up. Um, And we really have to pay attention to that initial response to sort of fight or flight and take some time, take some deep breaths. There's a reason. One of the tools in this chapter is um, take a deep breath and count to 10. Um, There's a reason that we teach that in preschool (laughs) because, because it's an initial innate automatic response. And until we take that deep breath and count to 10, we literally can't get to the thinking part of our brain. And that's certainly where you want to be, particularly when you're in a leadership role and people are watching you all the time. You want to be in that thinking part of your brain. That lizard brain definitely can get in the way of that. It's interesting, that one, isn't it? That one really jumped out at me that we do get taught that at a young age, but it's almost like over time, the world gets in the way and we forget that initial skill. Because even with kids today, if we can help them harness some of these skills, because their world's going to be more complex than we have the world today. Mm-hmm. And if they can harness those skills and they can harness stuff like meditation and mindfulness, they're going to be in a much better state for the future. Absolutely. And I think that particularly given technology and the pace of things, and I also think the uncertainty of things, that it's really easy. It's sort of the busyness part of the book too. It's really easy to hide in that busyness, to hide in our technology, because we don't want to really look at the fact that um, this is scary stuff, that we're uncertain, that the world is full of ambiguities that we can't explain. And rather than just take a moment and recognize that, we tend to um, just get busy and do more. And I think with kids, they tend to fall into their computers or their technology or their um, phones, and they're going to be less and less prepared for the complexities that are ahead. And the other really important choice you talk about in the book, you really do highlight that this is your choice as a leader. You can be this type of leader, is to ask yourself, who do I want to be right now? Exactly. And it really is a choice. I talk about sort of when you get, you know, when you go onto the airplane, right? And you're sort of walking across the jetway and you walk into that airplane, you're embarking on a journey. And even if it's the same thing you've done a million times, you will have experiences on that journey that will change you in some way. And I think that's true when you decide to really take leadership on as a journey and do this work. It's a, it's a conscious decision to move into that space um, and to think about these shifts and to do some of these practices. And you can't just say, tomorrow I'm going to be a leader because as things change, as you change and circumstances change, you have to be embarking all of the time. And so that's why it is a journey and it is, I feel like, a really important conscious choice to embark on this journey to become a different kind of leader. For me, for example, I talk a lot in the book about my friend Jim McLeod, who was a vice chancellor at my university. And Jim was the kind of leader that everybody wanted to be near. 
uh, Jim tells stories about Jim walking across campus and being the kind of leader who would always look for the people who were not part of something and reach out to them. It took him forever to get across campus. Um, And so, and the other thing that I talk about is Jim did that every day, no matter what. So Jim uh, died of cancer about seven years ago, and he was only 62, um, but it was a couple of years that he had cancer, and some days were really bad. And Jim still, every day when he was on campus, would make the choice to go reach out to the people who looked like they weren't finding a place. So his consistency of showing up exactly for the best version of himself is what makes me think of Jim when I think of who I want to be and sort of the best version of myself. And then the next step is to then think about, okay, who am I when I'm in my best version of myself? And how can I be showing up that way? And so it is a great place to start just to have an aspiration. It can be someone you know, someone you've interacted with. It could be a parent or a coach or a teacher or a boss or a colleague. Um, or it could also be somebody from fiction or movies that you really admire and feel like that's somebody that when you're at a loss for how you want to show up in a good way, you can think about that person and then look for the things in yourself that are really naturally like that person and start cultivating those. It's a great place to start. When you mentioned this in the book, it made me think that when we think of those people, what we're remembering and what we're what we see as the kind of examples they held for us, they're always soft skills. They're never technical skills. It's never like some domain expertise, isn't it? Like, and, and which leads nicely to your next one, which is all the different types of listening. And most importantly, the one we should strive for being epic listening. That's one of the big things that we think about. You're exactly right. When we think about leaders, nobody ever says he was the best software programmer I'd ever met. He might have been great at it. What they'll say is he was the best software programmer I ever met. He was always learning. He never stopped trying. He never, you know, so those are the soft skills that people focus on. And they'll also, I think, focus on people who listened to them, people who made them feel heard, people who drew them into the best version of themselves um, for themselves. So the three levels of listening are a great place to start. Really great leaders listen a lot more than they talk. The first level is faux listening, which is where we spend a lot of time, uh, which is that sort of you're talking and I'm thinking, what am I going to have for lunch today? And how am I going to get this child picked up after school? Or how are we going to get this project done? But the other thing that I think is really important that surprises people about faux listening is that faux listening is also when I'm thinking about what's the story I can tell that's just like that, right? When you're waiting for someone to take a breath so you can say, I had that, this happened to me, blah, blah, blah. And now you're not listening anymore. You've just actually stolen the conversation from them. So that's actually faux listening. We think it's connecting and we think it's really important, but in fact, it's about us and not about the other person. So that's faux listening. The next level is focused listening, which is when we're really intently listening. So the one I, the example I like to use for this is when someone's giving us directions someplace. Not that we do that very much anymore because of our phones, but if somebody's giving you directions to a place, you're really focused on everything they're saying and you're asking things like, is that is that that corner? Do I go this way? Really focused on what they're saying. And that's a next level of listening. I'm not thinking about myself. I'm thinking about what they're saying. And then that final level, which is what we're really going for, 
Not all the time, just knowing that when it's needed, we have it available, and that is epic listening. And that's when I'm really tuned in to not only what you're saying, but your body language, your energy, the feelings that that's creating for you. Um, and my best example of how that's useful is we were teaching this to a group of leaders, and one of them said when she came back, a week later, she said, I've got it. I know how to use epic listening. It was perfect. She had a guy walk into her office and he was just going crazy. Like, I can't get this done and they're not getting their stuff done. And if they don't get that done, and this whole goal is crazy and he's just going on and on. And she said, normally I would have jumped in and started either arguing with him or supporting him or thinking about what I can do to fix it. And she said, I just... I just locked into epic listening and I just let him talk and I was listening. And then when he was kind of done and he kind of spent it, I said, I said, it sounds to me like you're really overwhelmed. And he sat down in the chair and leaned back and said, I am really overwhelmed. And she said, all right, let's talk about that. So they were then able to really get at the root problem and what was happening and, you know, got fixed some things, talked to some people maybe said that's not quite accurate on some things, but really the goal was to get him past this overwhelm. And if she had just started solving things right away from either an epic or even a, or a faux or even a focused level, she wouldn't have gotten to the heart of the issue. So it saved a lot of time and made things a lot clearer. So that epic listening is an important skill and, and it's one to really practice. It's not one we come to naturally. Those moments when you do become that person, when when that person shows up, the epic listener, they're the moments that trust is really built, isn't it, in a relationship? Absolutely. Because what I'm saying is I am totally hearing you and seeing you and understanding where you are, and I'm willing to be there with you. And that's exactly where trust is built. It's a great insight. We might move on. So the next practice is explore. And I love this this is where you're owning your true self mm-hmm. and what you call owning your own shit. So <laughs> yes. good and bad, embracing that personal story. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I have, um, yeah, my phrase is leaders own their own shit. And I think that's really important. We're not perfect. Nobody thinks we're perfect. Nobody expects us to be perfect. So we have to know what are the dark sides of some of our strengths. I'm a firm believer in our greatest strengths are also often our greatest weaknesses. I mean, we want to focus on our strengths and what we do really well, but also acknowledge that sometimes those are not the perfect way to be. So how do we sort of be ourselves, but maybe not always perfectly ourselves? So really understanding our own story is important. What brought us here? What are sort of our best moments? What's important to us? Uh, We've been doing a lot of work recently on values. What are our values? And how do I act in a way that really reflects those values? Because that's where the authenticity is. So really knowing our story and then also being aware of when that is not always great. So for me, one of the things that happens is one of my sort of, based on my personal story, I'm the oldest in my family and the only girl and my dad traveled most weeks. So I'm used to being the responsible person for everything. Um, and that works really well sometimes. I get stuff done. People can count on me. I'm really in there. 
But sometimes it can go too far and I start taking on things for people when they should do them themselves. When I'm not building independence as the parent of a teenager, I'm really seeing this now when I'm getting my daughter ready to go to college. And I realize that there are a lot of things that I just naturally do because I'm so responsible that are not going to serve her when she can't do them for herself. So that's one of my things that I have to pay really close attention to. It's a great strength and when it's overused, it can it doesn't serve me. So really being aware of where those things are and also then asking people to hold us accountable, to be really transparent about that. When we know those well, when we own our own shit, I can say, look, here's something that I do that I need you guys to be watching out for and telling me when I'm doing it because I know that on some level it's not helpful uh, when it goes too far. So that's really that exploration of who we are and when it's good to be perfectly ourselves and when maybe we could tone it down a little bit. Yeah. I, I thought it was really authentic of you in the book to talk about yourself in this regard, that you then get your team to understand. You go, this is who I am. This is where my strength can be a weakness. And I need you guys then to step up and call me out when I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And that then invites them to do the same. So as a leader, part of what you're working through is this the dynamic of all the people and what are their sort of strengths and weaknesses? What do they love to do? What are they great at? What are they struggling with? And if you can say, here's something that I know about myself, they will then both be encouraged to think about themselves and what they should and could know about themselves and then also to share it. And so it builds trust and also creates team in a way that's powerful uh, when you can own your own shit. <laughs> yeah. And drop, drop on that mask. And, and what would you say to people? So some people will feel somewhat fearful of sharing their weakness because some people can hold it against you and use it against you. But obviously then you haven't hired the right people. What's your thoughts on that mm-hmm. one? Part of this is that self-awareness that comes from deciding to embark, knowing your own story, and owning that. Um, And when you own that in a particular way, I think it doesn't show up as a weakness in a strange way. Like that level of self-awareness and capacity to be confident enough to say, here's what I'm really good at and here's what I'm going to need some help with, actually ends up attracting people and feeling powerful. That's been my experience. I know it's hard to do, and a lot of people think, oh, I couldn't possibly share that. But it's it's very interesting to watch how people respond when you say, this is something I'm really good at, and it can play out this way, so I need you guys to help hold me accountable. It empowers them, actually. We think that it's going to make people feel less trusting of us, but it actually empowers other people and says, I value you and your opinion and your ways of interacting with me to the level that I'm willing to trust you with this and to ask for your help um, actually lifts people in a really surprising way. So that's what I tell people. And I tell them to tiptoe in. You don't have to start with your deepest, darkest, biggest weakness. (laughs) Start with something small. Like one of the things I tell people is don't ever give me an original piece of paper because I will lose it. It's just a reality. I don't hold on to paper well. And so it's a little tiny thing, right? It's not a big thing, but it's very true. And it says to people like, here's a thing that I know about myself. And it kind of, again, is an invitation. Like, what do you know about yourself that you could tell me that would allow me to help you? Um, 
So I would say it's, you know, you can tiptoe in, but it's an important, important step in empowering people and being an authentic leader. Yeah. And and you share this as well. And I said this to my wife last night, I was just finishing up the book and I said, you know, you talk about Mm -hmm. sharing your weaknesses and she's kind of going, I don't need you to share them. I know them already. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, yeah, but I'm, I'm giving you permission to share them. (laughs) It's a different thing. Right, exactly. (laughs) Well, and that's the other thing. It's a great point, Aiden. Like people know our weaknesses. It's obvious when we work with people closely, people know what we do well and what we don't do well. It's not a secret. So owning it and putting it out there and naming it is much more powerful than pretending they don't know or pretending they don't exist. Yeah, and it it also takes it off the table. We'll come back to it. We mentioned it in the intro about managing the counter-narrative, but we'll talk about that in a little while. Let's move on to the next major shift, which is the shift from knowing to understanding and the first step of that, which is expand. Yes, so expand is really about the idea that we have to be in a space where we're okay with the unknown and that what we tend to do is sort of take our brains and make them small and focus on the details and focus on the things we can know because those unknown things make us really uncomfortable. And as a leader, you have to be out in front into the unknown, into the ambiguity. We don't know what that competitor is going to do. We don't know what the economy is going to do. We don't know what that vote's going to bring. We don't know any of those things that are going to have a big impact on us. So to pretend that we know um, isn't really helpful. And so the leader's capacity to do what I call hold the tension of opposites and ask what if. So it is possible for two things to be true at the same time. And in fact, in our complex world, it happens a lot. So you have to really expand your brain, expand your capacity to hold those two things equally, and then to offer something new. So the tool that I talk about is holding those two, the tensions of opposites, and then asking what if. So I talk about sort of the example of the engineering, product development, and the marketing sales teams. Those are historically at odds on either end of the spectrum (laughs) in terms of what they need and what they want. And even sometimes personality-wise within an organization, we've all seen that play out. And it is true that both of those things need to happen. We need to have realistic product development timelines, and we need to sell to customers and clients on a timeline that they need. Those things are both true. So as a leader, as a CEO, you need to be able to say, so what if we can do both of these things? How might we do both of these things? Rather than, well, we're just going to compromise between these two and have decide which one we want to upset more or less. So it really is an expansive way of thinking about things that is required in the kind of complexity and ambiguity that we all live in right now. So I love your metaphor you talk about of the hourglass, Leslie, where you talk about embracing disequilibrium. So the hourglass is actually a friend of mine uses that metaphor. And um, it is just about that whenever we're in sort of a big change or things are uncertain, there's sort of everything that we know. And then we're moving into a new space, just like an hourglass from the top to the bottom. And then there's that middle bit where it all gets really jammed up and uncomfortable. And we don't know if it's going to keep going and all of that. And it's a great metaphor for disequilibrium and change that that's a time, that's a necessary time. If you take that hourglass and just tip it back up again, 
you don't move forward. Nothing happens. You just go back to where you were. So holding that space for that in-between time where you're in kind of that narrow part of the tunnel or that middle part of the hourglass is a huge job for leaders in complex times. And that requires this ability to expand, to hold the space, to be in that disequilibrium and to tell people that it's okay to inspire them and to and to lead them through that without just avoiding it. The people part is key here. And this leads nicely to the next practice that you talk about as as a leader, you need to not just actually manage people, but you need to engage them. Exactly. Exactly. Engage is really important. And there's a lot of traction about uh, employee engagement. And I honestly take a little bit of, of issue with it because a lot of it is about um, getting buy-in. Buy-in is a phrase that I don't like. Buy-in implies it's very transactional. It apply, implies that I can, if I say the right words, if I say the right thing, I'll get this buy-in. People will buy into what I'm saying, which is very different than commitment. What you want is people's commitment to what you're saying because that's what's going to get them working that extra bit, taking that extra step, being more creative. And that requires some different ways of engaging and really acknowledging people and their own needs. I talk about um, we are all unique individuals deeply embedded in social systems. And you really have to acknowledge that. You can't just treat everyone like a big lump of people that you can say the right thing and they're all going to buy in. Within that group, everyone's going to have their own way of thinking about and looking at the things that you're saying. That really ties nicely to you talk about shared meaning because, you know, people have come up with a great vision or a mission statement for the company, but it often doesn't mean anything to the people within the company. And you talk about one company, a division within the company, which shifted from 250 million to 400 million through shared meaning. Yes, exactly. What happens is somebody at the top or the board, Wall Street, any number of things say, this is what you have to do. And then we just say, okay, this is what we have to do. But for the people on the front lines, it changes their work. It changes their schedules. It changes their relationships with people. There are big things that happen at a really day-to-day level that people need to sort of get comfortable with and begin to understand in their own ways. So at that company, they had this huge increase in their goal. And rather than sort of the the leader of the division standing up and saying, here's our new goal and I know we can do it and everybody's excited thinking that she had buy-in. She really thought about, okay, who are the people that are going to have to do this work How do I give them the time and experience to get to some shared understanding and shared meaning and commit to it in such a way that they can keep carrying it through and we can make this happen? So small meetings with people sort of at different levels, starting with each of the managers. Here's where we're headed. Tell me about what that means for you, what you see that, how you see that playing out with your people, how we can, what meaning you can attach to it in your own way so that we can continue to get everyone to be a part of it. And as you said, have that shared understanding and commitment that comes from really thinking about it as it applies to me, not just trying to get buy-in to something someone else said. It's funny that one because you talked about the the small meetings there. So rather than having one big town hall and, you know, the big meeting and the CEO coming out and presenting the new vision and then that's it and everybody get to work, having those smaller meetings, 
one of the objections you often run into is people would say, oh, that's going to take for ages. And you're kind of going, it's going to work though. You're like, do you want to put, do you want to put lipstick on a pig and just go and do a big <laughs> right. thing? Or do you actually want it to really work? Like, which exactly. it's like, it's like wanting to get in great shape and going to the gym once a month. Exactly. Exactly. And saying, and the other thing too, Aiden, is that it, it ends up not taking that much more time. If you think about, I've been involved with meetings where we're, you know, the big unveiling, the big rollout, all the words that we use about the strategic plan or the new values and the hours that I have spent on phone calls with marketing people and the CEOs and the the meeting people and the you know all of the layers of time we've spent on the PowerPoint presentation for this big rollout and all the time and money we spend on getting everyone there to have this big announcement we could have used all of that time to have these smaller meetings to begin to build meaning, create meaning together so that when we got there and we had the big rollout, everybody went, oh yeah, I totally get this. I'm already on board and just have the excitement of it. But instead, we, because we're so, I think at some gut level, we actually know that we can't possibly say exactly the right words which is part of why we spend all this time on it, thinking if I spend more time, I can get the right words. And the fact is those exactly right words that will bring everybody to a level of commitment in one meeting do not exist. (laughs) So I think all of that time is actually just, it's just a matter of how we spend our time because it's probably about even. (laughs) Yeah. And and we'll talk about busyness in a a little while when we Mm -hmm. talk about reacting to responding, but Mm -hmm. it's that, isn't it? Like when, when people are, are in, are facing this massive change within a company mm-hmm. they often freeze and then focus on minutia like the the word crafting yes. of a mission statement yes exactly exactly which tells me that it's they're not really very clear um because if you're really focused on that one individual word probably means that you're and you're not trusting people to make meaning of it for themselves you think if you've got the one right word everyone will understand it in the same way and that is impossible yeah exactly and and i love and it's in this one that you talk about the counter narrative because this is yes. one that i thought was brilliant that we often put it out there a meaning or we do the town hall and then you might have as you call it, the parking lot mafia or the rumor mill who will mm. actually start poisoning the the well against yes. us but but we 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 tend to try and change their mind rather than find supporters of the message to get out there into the and put good water back into the well again Exactly. And it's exactly the same kind of thing, right? We spend all of our time thinking about how we can convince these negative people of something that um, that they just don't really want to believe. Uh, or we can think about supporting the people who do want to believe it and move forward. I just was on a call last week with a CEO who was coming up with a, coming up to a big staff change, and it was going to create a lot of challenge um, in this organization. And we spent a lot of time. T- she was all focused on the people who are in the corner with this person and how they're going to react and what they're going to do. And I said, "Stop!" I said, "I want you to think about the you know." There's 35 people on this team. I want you to just name for me the five, seven, ten, twelve people that you believe deep down will be saying it's about time somebody did something about that. Because I guarantee you. 
there are at least five and probably 10 people out of that 35 people who will be thinking, thank goodness, those are the people you need to focus on. Those are the people you need to be supporting rather than spending your time trying to unwind and undo the other 15. There'll probably be five who really think it's a travesty. There will be 10 to 15 who are kind of neutral or not willing to say that it's a good idea. And there will be those five or 10 people who are deep down or overtly glad and relieved and believe in you as a leader because you took care of it. Focus on them. I love that. I wrote a piece recently on this because we think of the word naysayer often and we focus on, as you say, convince mm-hmm. the naysayer or change them. But there's also the opposite of the naysayer, which is the gainsayer, which is the people who are calling out for the right reasons and making yeah. them champions of the message can really yes. change the whole narrative. Absolutely. And it brings them so much more fulfillment. Those are also the people who really want to do a good job and want to feel good at their work. And they'll be so much happier and do so much more when they have that kind of support. Brilliant. And so we might move on to the the last Mm -hmm. kind of shift, which is the shift from reacting to responding. And then the two practices Mm -hmm. that support this shift being encourage and involve. So encourage is a little bit like this um, flows from engage. Encourage is really about seeing yourself as the mentor Uh, And I talk about the hero's journey, sort of the call to greatness. And then part of what moves that hero forward is that they always meet a mentor. I was actually doing a book conversation uh, last week, and one of the women in the group uh, is a Star Wars fan, and I talk about Yoda and how Luke Skywalker would have never been uh, who he is had he not met Yoda. And she said, I love Star Wars. And it really shifted for me. I always think of myself as Luke Skywalker, but it really shifted for me as a leader to think, oh, I'm actually Yoda for all of these other people. And that changes how I show up and the kinds of interactions I have with them. Um, And so that was really fun. So Encourage is really about sort of seeing yourself in that different light and taking that very seriously and being very intentional about it. And it's a fun thing. It's a really fun thing to do. That metaphor you used, that Joseph Campbell hero's journey, really was brilliant. It's a brilliant metaphor because, like you say, as a leader, you have to be both Luke Skywalker and Yoda for everyone else. But you are still Luke, but you're at a different level of of growth in in your growth stage. Exactly. And just that awareness that you can be both, it goes back to that expand, right? Like the idea that you can be both hero and mentor at the same time uh, changes how you see yourself and the ways that you interact with people. Yeah, it's a fun one. And I love the hero's journey um, and the whole Joseph Campbell and myths. And there's a lot of truth in all of that for us as leaders who also want to be humans. Another one you you talk about, which is getting clear on your come from place, because this is the one we mentioned briefly earlier on about synchronizing your body language and your actual language. Yes, yes, this is a a really funny one, and it's you know when we were in an argument or we're in sort of a th- we'll say I don't get where they're coming from. Like it is a very real thing. We come from a place, a perspective, an emotion, of feeling, a story that expresses itself in what we say. And if we're saying something that's not really aligned with who we are and sort of our, what I call our come from place, people will know 
It's really not hidden. Um, and even if we think we're covering it really well, there's going to be that piece that's missing. And it goes back to what you were saying about trust. Um, if we're not aligned in our come from place uh, with what we um, with what we really believe, people will know. This CEO I was just on the phone with last week on this change in her staff. Um, I said, okay, I just want you to not think about this. Just give me a quick response. Do you believe that you can work with this person going forward? And she said, no. And I said, then no conversation with her needs to be about how you can make this work because that will just prolong this in a way that's not helpful or useful. If you don't believe after this experience with her that you can continue to work with her and that she will be a positive influence in your organization, then don't talk about what she can do to make that happen because you don't believe it. Um, so that come from place is really important and it is, it is the quick yes or no. It's not a long protracted thing. And that's really important as well for the rest of your team, isn't it? Because they'll know that you don't yes. rate that person or they'll see it in your body language or some other way. And by seeing you kicking the can down the road actually makes them disengage. Exactly. Exactly. It will then say to them, oh, she's going to do that. And there are all kinds of messages in it. And sometimes it's not the perfect time. You know, we had another conversation about, okay, this is not the perfect time to make this happen. So then what's happening in the interim? How do you not be in a come from place that isn't authentic, but also gets the time? There are lots of things to consider around that, but clarity on that come from place really does align in such a way that you can be authentic and that people will trust you and know where you stand. Time is a huge part of all this. And obviously the book is called Finding Time to Lead, but time comes in under the evolve part, the evolve practice, yes. because we often are too busy or we believe we're too busy. But one question we should always ask yourself, and you talk about this is, do we do less things, but do them better? Right. And are we using our time well? Again, that sort of doing to being. If I'm spending all of my time doing, I'm not really giving myself the time and space to be who I want to be. And that's perhaps our more important role. So I talk in the book about changing our relationship to time and actually taking charge of it. Um, back to technology, I think we tend to, you know, we, we brag about how many emails we have since we've been sitting here for this hour and how much time, we don't have time for things and if only we had time, when in fact we're making choices about our time always. And the fact that we sort of blame time for all of the things that we don't do just lets us off the hook. So by changing our relationship to time, saying things like, I have chosen to use my time this way um, instead of that way, changes from, that's a really different statement than I don't have time for that. Um, and that's a really important distinction that can help us with this whole idea of time and what we do with it. That really resonated with me because even for writing, people go to me, how do you do the show and write your blog every week and have a, have a job and a family? This is exactly why, because I make choices. I don't watch Netflix or I don't binge watch because okay. I can't. I don't have the time for that as well as this, but I make the choice to do that and I prioritize this over that. And I loved what you said about shifting our language because I, I've taught my kids this is, is don't say, oh, I have to go and do this. 
saying I have to makes it a burden or a chore. Right. But actually saying, I'm going to do this now is a totally different way. It's, an, it's a positive way of saying you're going to do something. Absolutely. And it also really reinforces, which is a sort of a theme in the book throughout, it reinforces the fact that no matter where we are in the organization, Charlie, I mean, those are your kids, right? They're like little. And yet they still then have some control over their own lives and their own time. And it feels like a choice. Um, and in a company or an organization, a lot of the things I hear from leaders are people don't want to do, they just complain about how they don't have time and they're not taking responsibility for themselves. And this shift is part of that. By saying, I choose to do this, it's not just about time, it's about my own responsibility for myself and the choices that I make. And so I'm not shrugging my shoulders or throwing up my hands. It's that these are the choices I'm making. And that in itself is a big shift. And those people, like, I just always think of this. If you get everybody in your company on that page or on that wavelength, where they're actually mm. coming from an attitude of gratitude rather than entitlement, because if they have a problem with the job, go somewhere else and work somewhere else because, you know, we're at a time of all-time low employment. And I'm sure then bringing it right back to the lizard brain part, that's probably part of the reason they're not actually doing it or not moving. Mm. And by staying in the company, they're making things worse. And complaining a lot to everyone else. And it, you know, if you think about a whole group of people who are throwing up their hands because they don't have time for things, what else are they not deciding? What else are they not being bold about? What else are they not feeling in charge of in such a way that they're innovative and doing new work? Um, it's a huge, it really rolls itself up into something much larger. That's fantastic. And, th and then the last practice you talk about, Leslie, is the idea of extend. And I loved your variation of the M. Scott Beck quote for this one, because it, it really, really jumped out at me. And it was a ni really nice way to talk about the idea of extending. Thank you. Yeah, it was really sort of the culmination of all of it is really this idea, M. Scott Peck's book, The Road Less Traveled from the 1970s, and my paraphrase of his definition of love, which is the will to extend yourself on behalf of another. And from my perspective, that's really what this is all about. And I talk about it. It's not like the ooey-gooey Valentine's Day love. It's really about sort of that deep, compassion that connects us as human beings. And when we think about back to the beginning, who do we want to be? The leaders we think of are the people who really connected with us as a human being. They're the people who loved us in ways that were important in the moments that we knew them. And that, as a leader, requires us to extend ourselves. It requires us to make the hard choice that maybe isn't exactly what we want or exactly what we would want to do in this moment. But we use all of these tools to get ourselves into a place where we can make the choice, have the will to extend ourselves on behalf of someone else. And that, in my mind, is what it really comes down to in the end, is just that connecting and our capacity to be able to do that and then to have the will to do it. That's fantastic and a really nice way to leave it because you have certainly extended your reach with the book and you know, hopefully we can carry that reach a little bit further and extend the message a little bit further. Where can people find out more about you and your work, Leslie? So you can find out more at findingtimetolead.com. The book is available on Amazon. You can find my email at findingtimetolead.com. I'm always happy to talk to people.
author of Finding Time to Lead, Seven Practices to Unleash Outrageous Potential, Leslie Peters, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Aidan. It was a really great pleasure to be here and I enjoyed our conversation. Thanks so much.